good morning again. Uh, those of you joining us online just now, welcome. Glad that you are here. Uh, and if you're watching this at a later date, that's also really cool that that technology works like that. Um, we're going to continue our series in Acts today. Uh, if you are newer with us, you should know that this is kind of the norm for us, is just walking through a book of the Bible, section by section. Um, I would like to say verse by verse, but sometimes it's more like section by section, but we cover uh, the whole book, and uh, that's kind of meat and potatoes for us, and then sometimes we'll do topical studies as we see fit. Um, and so today we're going to be continuing uh, that series we've been in in Acts for the second time for a little while now. We're in chapter 17. We're going to cover the end of it. Uh, and so we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And so we're going to be diving into one of the more uh, well-known stories from Acts uh, as we see the Apostle Paul preaching in the city of Athens at what's called the Areopagus. Uh, and so there's some pretty interesting stuff going on there. Uh, if you remember from the last couple of weeks, Paul has been traveling uh, and he's come through most recently the cities of Thessalonica uh, and then Berea. And so last week we saw Paul get to Berea and he started to talk about Jesus with the people there after basically having been kicked out of Thess Thessalonica. Uh, and, and then we saw some of the Jews from Thessalonica find out that he was doing the same thing that they got mad about. Uh, and they come to Berea and they stir up trouble there. And Paul is sent away uh, in order to kind of escape the trouble there. And so those who were charged with sort of getting Paul out of there, uh, who were with him, accompanying him, uh, they bring him as far as Athens. And so we see that Paul leaves Berea and he makes uh, about a 200-mile trip down to Athens. Uh, and he leaves Silas and Timothy behind. And so as we start our text for today... Uh, what we see is that Paul is waiting for his travel partners, Timothy and Silas, to kind of meet up with him. He has sent uh, commands for them to come to him. And so Paul finds himself alone in Athens. Uh, and this is the city of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Epicurus. Uh, and so even though it had been 400 years or so since kind of the golden age of uh, when I was reading this week, they called it the golden age of Pericles. Uh, Paul finds the city uh, kind of still in at least an outward glory. Um, and so Athens was kind of the intellectual center of the world, uh, kind of in the same way we would hear Oxford spoken about uh, in the earlier uh, 19th century. And so scholars from all over the inhabited world would come to Athens. Many of them would transplant there. They would live there. They would work there. Uh, and so it's the intellectual hub of the known world at the time. Now, the Romans had conquered Athens in 146 BC, but because they were so enamored with anything Greek, Greek culture, uh, Greek thinking, uh, because Athens was such a centerpiece of that, they didn't change the status of Athens as a free city. Uh, and so Athens was still able to operate the way it had operated. Uh, and so by the time Paul gets there, Athens, despite all of its kind of glorious past, is, is almost empty. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty empty city, like the, 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 uh, the population decline had been uh, happening. And so it was basically living on the memories of the past. Uh, the art, the philosophy, two things that Athens had been known for were essentially now just kind of echoes of what it had been. And so the city was beautiful looking, but it was kind of dead. Uh, and so this is what the Apostle Paul sees as he gets there. So we're going to start in verse 
uh, 16 of Acts chapter 17, and we'll get to the end of the chapter today. So Acts chapter 17, we're going to start in verse 16, and I am going to go get myself a water, and you guys are going to act like this isn't happening. Here I am. Those of you watching online, I think I just disappeared and reappeared, so. Oh, so much better. Uh, So, verse 16 of Acts chapter 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that's Timothy and Silas, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced this spirit being provoked in you, but I think I have. Uh, When my wife and I first got involved in the foster care system, I think that's the experience I had of being like, this is not right. And I need to do something about this. I think that's what this is. And if you've ever experienced that, you know how strong of a uh, provocation that is. And so the word translated there where it says he saw that the city was full of idols. That word uh, is the same word that we get our English word theater from. So the Apostle Paul is essentially staring long, at, long and hard at what he is seeing. And so uh, what he's seeing is a city that's, this is not a figure of speech. The city is literally full of idols. Uh, Pausanias, a Greek geographer who visited Athens just some 50 years later, said this. He said it was easier to meet a god or a goddess on the main street of Athens than to meet a person. And so this is statistically the case because the population was about 10,000 at that time, and there was roughly about 30,000 statues of gods on the streets of Athens. So more statues of gods than people. Uh, And so the streets are literally full of idols, and so the Bible here says that the Apostle Paul's spirit was provoked. Why? Because he's looking out and he is seeing false worship everywhere. It makes me think that he is feeling the same feeling that Jesus felt when it says that he looked out on the crowds and they were uh, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's provoked in the spirit. And so the, the wording for that in the original Greek means that Paul is angry about a lie that he is seeing. That's, that's that provoked word. And so as a Jewish monotheist, right, this is who Paul is, he would have been disturbed by this. And then on top of that, you add the fact that he is now a Christian apostle, he is even more upset. He sees that people are believing a lie and it's destroying them. And he's provoked. He's angry about the lie. And so every one of those statues showed something interesting, right? It shows that the Athenians, they're looking for God, but it also shows that they're totally lost in finding the one true God. That they're going from God to God to God to God, not finding anything. And they're continually having to keep moving. And I wonder, as I think about that, how many of us or people that we know are like the Athenians in this regard, right? We might not go to statues of false gods. Uh, But make no mistake, we look to things for salvation, and that's the same thing, right? We, We look to things to be functional saviors for us, and that's the same as worshiping an idol. And so Paul feels desperate concern over the spiritual need that he sees in front of him. 
He knows this is his calling, and so he feels this provocation. And so we see here that Paul now uh, has that same spirit-filled experience that I talked about Jesus having when he looks out over the crowd, but also uh, people like the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament, right? Where it says that this urge to speak was like a fire locked up in his bones. This is what Paul is feeling here. And so the apostle Paul here he, in Acts, he, he just simply can't hold it in. So now for those of us in here who follow Jesus, right? This is an example for us, I think. When we read the book of Acts, this is what we, we can see out of it. It's not a prescriptive letter for what we should do, but it's an example of what it looks like to follow Jesus on mission. If our hearts never ache in us, when we see people chasing after things that are lies, that will not save them, then, then we're confronted with the reality in our own heart. The reality might be that we've never actually been redeemed by Jesus ourselves. And it doesn't bother us. Or the reality might be that we have become apathetic to the reality of the world around us. It's an experiment you can try. Uh, I want you to think through, uh, those of you who have experience in in hearing missions stories, right? Uh, Or going on trips yourself. If you were being sent by a missions agency, let's say Alliance Missions was going to send you to a country you would begin thinking through some strategic things. You would think through, how can I be around people? How can I uh, get in relationship with people? You would uh, move to a new place, and you would see every person there as a potential relationship to build for the sake uh, of having relationships, but also for the sake of sharing the good news of the love of Jesus with them, right? But what happens is we somehow lose sight of that, that call that we have as sent ones, And we live in neighborhoods full of people. We go to jobs filled with people, and we just become blind to them over time. We just lose sight of the fact that these are the people God has called us to. And so I want to just challenge you in that way, that if you you never find in yourself an ache that, man, I just want people to, to stop believing the lies they're believing. It's destroying their lives, and I can see it. If you never feel that, I just want to invite you to bring that to the Holy Spirit in prayer and ask him to open your eyes back up to the people that are around you. So Paul is is unable here to be indifferent or detached from the, the people that he sees. So he jumps right in. Look at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. Now devout persons is the same category of people that we, we saw Lydia being in earlier. These are God-fearers or people who are not Jewish but follow the Jewish faith. Uh, And so he is in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now, I don't know if maybe you're aware of this or not, but Stoicism is is kind of making a comeback right now. Uh, Very popular, especially among young men. Very popular uh, among young men to read the Stoics, and I think that's a good thing to do. Um, we, we are told uh, all the time on things like social media and online that we should read the writings of Alexander the Great, which I don't disagree with. Uh, and so you need to know that this, uh, if, if you know a younger guy, just know that Stoicism is in his world probably right now. And so Paul begins dialoguing with anyone who's going to talk to him. 
Remember, this is his his method. He goes to the synagogue and he starts having conversations, dialogues with them about the scriptures and about Jesus. And he finds three groups of people who are willing to hear him, who are willing to interact with him here. He finds those who are religious, right? The Jews and the devout persons. He finds kind of your average uh, street level unbeliever, just like a regular person. Uh, And then he finds the intellectual philosopher types called the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, the last two groups there, they sort of represent, the Epicureans and Stoics, they represent the competing philosophies of the day that Paul finds himself in. The Epicureans believe, essentially, that everything kind of happens by chance and that death is the end, it's you just extinction and there's no afterlife, That, that that's it. Uh, And so they believe there are gods, but they believe that those gods have nothing to do with the world. Uh, And so they are practical sort of agnostics who believe that the chief sort of uh, uh, end of man is to chase after pleasure uh, and and that a simple lifestyle is the most pleasurable. That's kind of a a very uh, boiled down version of Epicurean philosophy. Now the Stoics, on the other hand, they are pantheist, essentially believing that God is kind of everywhere, that everything is God, and that whatever happens to you is your destiny. This is what you hear nowadays. And I think there's some good in this. Stop worrying about what you can't worry about and control what's in your life. That's stoicism, right? And so, but it's coming from this place that believes that sort of everything is God and that anything that happens to you was just destined to happen to me. And so they sought to live with um, what they would call detachment, And not the uh, historic Christian spirituality detachment that's good. This is a detachment that's kind of a fatalistic resignation. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. So just let it happen. And so these two philosophies together sort of represent the popular uh, pagan alternatives for dealing with the plight of humanity apart from Jesus. Uh, And and that word pagan, I know for us it means kind of negative, but in this time, all that that meant was somebody who wasn't a Christian. Uh, It's not a negative term. Um, It it just means somebody who doesn't follow Jesus. So Epicureanism, simple lifestyle. Stoicism, apathy. Both of these are highly intellectual pursuits, but they both lack a sort of divine validation, if you will. So how are they going to respond to the gospel that Paul preaches look at verse 18 and some said what does this babbler wish to say others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching jesus and the resurrection okay if you don't get anything else out of today understand the central teaching of christianity is jesus christ and the resurrection from the dead that's what makes christianity christianity Now, it doesn't come across in the English translation, but understand here that there's a lot of sarcasm in this response. They're being very, I don't know if you've ever been around people who I will lovingly call philosophy nerds, but they can be kind of sarcastic. Okay, If you haven't experienced that, uh, maybe it's you. I don't know. But it doesn't come across in the English, uh, but understand that there's, again, a lot of kind of mocking and sarcasm in, in this response. The word translated babbler is a word that actually, uh, if you literally would translate it, it would be seed picker. Seed picker, right? So originally used, it was describing birds that would pick up seed and grain 
uh, and drop them somewhere else. And so over the years, this term kind of became a derogatory term to mean somebody who peddles other people's ideas. That they don't have anything original to say themselves. They just hear stuff from here and they hear stuff from here and they just kind of regurgitate it. Right? They're essentially a plagiarist. That, that's, what, that's what they're calling Paul. Oh, this person who doesn't actually know anything himself but wants to sound smart, so he's saying stuff he's heard other places. Sounds like social media. Um, so to call someone a babbler was kind of a cool insult at the time. This was a, a way to kind of shut somebody down. Oh, this seed picker, this babbler, right? But in verse 21... Listen to what Luke says, the author of Acts. Listen to what he says about the Athenians himself. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Luke is kind of saying, actually, they're the babblers. And they're being confronted with something new. Here's how one commentator described Athens. Athens was the home of looking like the cool cultivated critical intellect which had tried all things and found all wanting there were few hearers and no open door for new teaching so this group of this kind of person in Athens is essentially thinking that they already have heard everything there is to hear and so the Athenian mindset was that they were always looking for something cool but also thinking there wasn't really anything new they 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 wanted new ideas, but they wanted to be the place where those new ideas came from. So this is what Paul is kind of up against here. And so now the crowd brings Paul before the Areopagus. This is kind of the center of philosophical and intellectual debate. It's kind of the place where this would happen, uh, right? And so this is where ideas were presented. This is where ideas were argued about. Uh, the place was called Mars Hill. And the setting itself would be pretty amazing uh, just in terms of a word picture of what's actually happening here. Right in front of Paul, there would have been a temple, a Doric temple uh, called the Thessium. On his right would have been the upper part of the city, the Acropolis, and then the Parthenon. Around him would have been thousands of statues of silver and gold uh, and bronze. And so Paul is standing right in the middle of monument after monument to false gods. And so not only this, but Paul has essentially the most exclusive philosophical review club that you could get in the world at that time right in front of him wanting asking him yeah tell us what you're going to tell us waiting for him to start talking pressure right so what's he going to say well uh, one commentator ff bruce called what he says a masterpiece of communication verse 22 so paul standing in the midst of the areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul's approach is really brilliant here. If you ever hear anybody talking about uh, like exegeting the culture or being relevant to the culture, this is prime example right here. So his approach is, is incredible. He compliments them, right? He begins by complimenting 
by saying that they are in every way very religious. So yes, Paul is going to speak to the falseness of their religion, but he meets them where they are and gives them a real, he's really complimenting. This is in good faith here. This is not sarcasm from Paul. He really is saying, you're looking for God. And he's establishing common ground with them. And so he also makes incredible application, right? Because he points directly to the issue at hand. The word uh, translated as unknown is the same word that's the root word of, of agnosticism. Uh, which means without knowledge. If you ever hear anybody saying, I'm an agnostic, what they mean is that, yeah, I think there might be a God, but there's no way to know. And so the Athenians were supposed to know everything, right? They're the center of intellectual, philosophical knowledge, and yet they know that they don't know everything. They have a temple to the unknown God. They have come up short. They don't know God and on the so the on the most important thing they are without knowledge now Paul doesn't say that they don't know God he doesn't accuse them of not knowing God he simply points out that they have already said this themselves he says hey you have a temple to the unknown God you already admit that you don't know God so now that Paul has established this connection to them he starts kind of handing out spiritual medicine now that they're ready to hear. First about God and then about themselves. And take note, that's always the order. We start talking about God and who God is and his truth. And then that presses up against who we are in relationship. Um, the truth about God always helps us understand the truth about ourselves. And we have to make that order uh, correct. God first, then us. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Now, he has just smashed all the idols with his words, right? All of these are false. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. That will put us in our place, won't it? God doesn't need us. He's not actually served by our hands, which means you can't put him in your debt. You can't make God owe you something because he doesn't need anything that you've got to give anyway. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You don't exist without him. So the fundamental truth about God is that he is the creator. The God who made the world and everything in it, as the creed would say, all that is seen and unseen. Now that may not sound that earth shattering to us, but it challenged their entire worldview, their entire theology, if you will. The Stoics, again, are pantheists. The Epicureans are kind of practical atheists. And so Paul's declaration denies the premises of both of these groups. In his statement in verse 25, that God is the life giver. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It drives that truth home even further because it directly attacks... The Epicureans believe that God is absent, and the Stoics believe that he's kind of in everything. As the giver of life, God is actively here, but he's not contained within creation. 
And so the last great truth about God is that he's not only the creator and the life giver, but that God actually seeks us out. That God is not far from us. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Do you know that God determined where you would live and when you would live? You're not an accident. Your life is not an accident. He determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling places. Why? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. So practically, what is Paul saying? He is saying that they are not living in Athens as a result of some cosmic accident, but instead that God had structured their lives in order to attract them to him. That everything that has happened in their life has led up to this moment with him. And so, you know, we need to know this today, that God is calling you to himself. And he has been all of your life. God who created everything, who gives you your life, who gives meaning to your life, he wants you to know him. This is the good news of Jesus, that you were created by God to know him, and that God in Jesus, despite all of your I don't want to know you, God, right, in your whole life that we call sin, that in Jesus, God is seeking a relationship with you by faith in Jesus so that you might know him and be transformed. Let's keep going. Verse 28, Paul says, for in him we move and have our being. We live and move and have our being. Now you notice that's in quotes. That's going to be important. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. But then God's offspring, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He's like, God can't be captured in a statue made by us. He gives us our life. How are we going to give God a life? Right? I remember a friend of mine who went on a trip said he was struck when he went there. I think it was uh, a place where there were Buddhist statues everywhere. And they were worried, he said, because there were statues that were out and they were going to get rained on. And they needed to put them inside so they wouldn't get damaged and lock the doors so that no one could steal them. And he just thought it was interesting to think that if your God can get damaged by the rain and be stolen by somebody, he's not much of a God. And so the apostle here explains that as God's creatures, we have intrinsic dignity. You have intrinsic dignity. But what we also see here is that Paul is, again, a master communicator. He's incredible at what he is doing here. He quotes a couple of their own poets in order to kind of maintain interest and keep that connection that he's got with them. In the first part of verse 28, when it says... In him we live and move and have our being. That's actually a quote from the work of the philosopher poet Epimenides, uh, who was popular in that day. And the final line in verse 28, for we are indeed his offspring. This is a direct uh, confrontation with Greek thinking. This is from the writings of Aratus, And here's the quote that that line comes from. All the ways, all ways are full of Zeus and all meaning, all meeting places of men. The sea and the harbors are full of him. In every direction, we all have to, we all have to do with Zeus, 
for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul is coming and saying, you know, the chief God of your philosophy that says that we're all his offspring? No, 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 no. The God Yahweh is the God that we are all his offspring. This is the Apostle Paul confronting that thinking. And so his point was that as creatures of intrinsic dignity made by the one true God, having been created by him, we should refrain from false worship. Why? Since we're made in the image of God, it's insulting to God and it's degrading to us to make an idol out of God. It's insulting to God and it's degrading to us to worship anything but the one true God in whose image we are made. And so Paul then continues and he, he finally makes a plea here, a, a call to action, we might say. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which we, he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So he's speaking about Jesus here. Paul says that all people are to what? Are to repent. But of what? Repenting means to turn from what you were chasing and go the other way. My favorite illustration of repentance is one that my professor in Bible college used to use. He would say that when I went to college, I, my, my mom would make amazing apple pies when I was at home for Thanksgiving and the holidays. But I went to college, you know, I, I couldn't get home. And so I started just eating the frozen ones. And they were fine. They're all right. And over time, I just kind of got used to that. And then I went back home one day and mom made her apple pie from scratch. And I realized I never want a frozen one again. That's repentance. You've seen something better and you lose the taste for this. And so Paul says, repent of what? Idolatry. Worshiping false gods. Why? Because you'll see the God who made everything, who is your life itself, and he'll be better than anything that you could see. See, if we set anything above God as the object of our time, our thought, our energy, our life, we are worshiping the work of our hands and we're actually degrading God and we're degrading ourselves. Paul says that they need to repent because why? Judgment is coming. I know that we don't like to talk about that. It's a bad word, judgment. Ooh, don't talk about that. But Paul is saying mankind is not just moving towards extinction, which is what the Epicureans would have thought, nor are we moving just sort of towards absorption into the cosmos which is what the stoics kind of thought would happen at the end but he says no mankind being created by this god is moving towards a judgment by this god and and the one who will judge has been resurrected from the dead which is really important for us to hear and what we know from the history of our faith all the way back to jesus himself again is that the resurrection is always the sticking point that's the place where things get real because people know, I think we inherently know, that if someone was actually raised from the dead, then everything they say and do is of utmost importance. Right? If somebody was raised from the dead, you want to listen to them. And so just like today, resurrection is the sticking point here for Paul as well. There was a popular saying amongst the Greeks in Paul's day that said this, when the dust has soaked up a man's blood, once he is dead, there is no resurrection. 
And so Paul steps into that and says, yeah, there is a resurrection, and the one who is resurrected from the dead is going to judge you. And this is what we have always believed as Christians. Our creed says that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. So this is a confronting call, and this confronting call for decision was not what these Athenians on Mars Hill were kind of wanting that day. What, what would they have wanted? Well, they kind of probably just wanted to kick around some ideas, talk about it, see you know, what, what would come of it. But Paul comes in and begins calling them to repentance in light of the resurrection of Jesus, and most of them don't like it. One philosopher had this to say regarding the Greeks in this story. He says this, This admirable account plainly shows how far Greek tolerance goes and where the patience of the intellectual ends. They all listen to you calmly and smilingly, and at times they even encourage you, saying, Oh, that's strange, or he has brains, or that's suggestive, or how fine, or pity that a thing so beautiful should not be true, or this makes one think. But as soon as you speak to them of resurrection and life after death, they lose their patience and cut short their remarks and exclaim, enough of this, we will talk about this another day. Right? So everything is fine as long as we remain theoretical. But as soon as we call for action, as soon as we start talking about repenting and following Jesus, the posture shifts, people start looking at their watches, right? Being confronted with the reality of accountability to the one true God will make many people uncomfortable. But let's look at the reaction in the text. It's really important. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So Paul's sermon has three results. We've talked about this before. There's mockery, there's delay, and then there's a few who believe. And I think these are still the main three buckets or categories of ways that people respond to the good news of Jesus. For those of us who, like Paul, follow Jesus and long to see others doing the same, we should expect to see these three results. There are those who will mock us. There are those who we might be able to come back to. And then there are those who, by God's grace, will receive what we have said and they will believe. Now, that second category, I think there's a little bit of a nuance to put in there. Uh, that second category, in this case, um, some scholars think that this is, this, this is sort of intellectually dishonest, this second reaction. We want to hear more another day. Because in the text, they never hear it again. That Paul never talks to them again. So some believe that they're just kind of putting Paul off, and that's actually why Paul left so quickly in the text. And, and I think that we might find that to be true in our own lives as well. There are people who will tell you, yeah, I'll come to church with you, but they never show up. Or there's people who would tell you, you know what, I'd love to hear more about this Jesus. Why don't we meet in a couple weeks? And then in a couple weeks, they, oh, I, I can't, I, I got this excuse, reason. And so there are those who just don't want the confrontation, right? And, and so I think we need to be aware that that is a possibility when people tell us, I'll hear you again another time. But what we see in this text, I think, should give us motivation and confidence to keep following Jesus and calling others to do the same. 
When you experience mockery for the name of Jesus, when you experience someone saying, yeah, I don't really want to hear that, maybe another day, just know you are right in line with the Apostle Paul. You are right in line with all those in church history who did the same thing. We see that despite the mockery and the rejection that Paul faces here at the Areopagus, there was a man and a woman who gave their life to Jesus. Right? That's a miracle when that happens. Every time somebody believes in Jesus, it's incredible. The man's name was Dionysius. He was an elite. He was a member of the Areopagus. That's pretty amazing. The woman called Damaris, we, we don't know anything else about these two, but we do know that they listened to Paul's words with all their hearts and they followed Jesus that day. And so the reality is that all of us will have opportunities to speak in our own Areopaguses. It might not be the actual center of influence in our culture, but you have circles of influence in your life that you've been invited to speak into. You have places of opportunity to share the reality of God and Jesus in a winsome way that speaks to the needs to those who will listen. Uh, over the last few days, you may have heard the news that one of the great American pastors of kind of our lifetime, Timothy Keller, passed away. And if there's one thing that he was incredible at, other than preaching the gospel, uh, he was incredible at doing this kind of work. Winsomely speaking, to those who would listen in their cultural language. I would encourage you to read everything he's written. Find his sermons online, listen to them. So you might not have the actual center of influence in your culture, but you have a circle of influence in your life. It might, might look like two other people. Your circle of influence might be your kids that are at home with you. Your circle of influence might be the person in the cubicle next to you. Your circle of influence might be a sports team that you ended up coaching. Right? Your circle of influence could be whatever it is. And so my hope is that hearing this story from Acts is a moment of encouragement for those of us who know Jesus to see that these three responses, mockery, delay, and belief, are part of what it means to share Jesus. And so we don't need to become disheartened when we see the first two. Because if we become so disheartened when we see the first two that we stop sharing the good news of Jesus, we're never going to get to see the third one where people believe. Because God is calling people to himself. And so the response of belief in Jesus that leads to lives being transformed is what continues to motivate us. It's the love of Jesus that we want to see other people experience that continues to motivate us to keep sharing the good news of Jesus. Let me pray. Jesus, again, we thank you for these stories uh, from this missionary handbook that we call the book of Acts. As we look at what it looks like to uh, be sent out and be called to share um, the gospel of your kingdom. So we ask that you would uh, make us bold and brave, willing to potentially be mocked and maybe um, dismissed in order that maybe there's just a couple people in our whole life who might come to know you. Uh, would you make that a pursuit that we are willing to go after? We ask you to bless the rest of our day as we spend it, hopefully, with family and friends uh, in the, the beautiful creation that you have uh, given to us to enjoy. And we ask that you would give us opportunities to share your good news with people this week and today as we go out from here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.